Um, we're going to be in Exodus 32. Go ahead and turn there. So let me pray, and then we will dive right in. Lord, we come to you now, and we, uh, we thank you for the sweet opportunity to open the word and to um, consider what you've done in the past, how you've moved, how you've revealed yourself to your people, how you intercede for your people, how you bring about um, those throughout the history of the church who care for the church in unique ways. Lord, I'm thankful for those who have gone before us who have stood um, boldly for Christ and who have not wavered in regards to holiness and purity. And I pray that in studying these things, we would be really transformed by the renewal of our minds uh, to be people who stand firm in truth, to be people who hold each other accountable, to be people who put your glory first, to put others first, to be people who are um, prayerful in all things. So, Lord, we pray that you would guide our time tonight uh, as we look at Exodus 32, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last couple of weeks, we were in Joel, and Bill did a wonderful job walking us through uh, all of it in a couple of weeks, and I'm thankful for your time you spent on that and for the time we got to have in that. Before we did that, we were in Exodus 32. Originally, we were going to spend two weeks in Exodus 32, and now we're going to spend three weeks in Exodus 32. So we kind of got to dive back in and uh, see what's going on. So before I read any of it, while Moses was on top of Mount Sinai, what were the people doing and why? Say that again. Growing impatient, probably like you, when I ask you to repeat yourself every single time. I apologize for that. Growing impatient. Yeah, and what was their impatience leading them to? Worship of the golden calf, yes. Um, and how did that happen? An evil, wicked people, hard-hearted, stiff-necked, as the Lord would have said. Um, Yeah, that's a problem. That's a, that's a weird fire to cause such an ordeal. Uh, what is idolatry? Putting anything before God. And what does idolatry look like? What are some examples of how that could play out in our own lives? And how did we see it in Exodus 32? Double stuffed Oreos. Amen. Yeah. Not regular Oreos necessarily, but the double stuffed Oreos, that's... It's temptation. How else can that play out? Idolatry. Say that again. Job. Yes. And what does it look like if our job is our idol? Yeah, it's more important than following God, and that will result in decisions that look like what? Selfishness. What else? Yeah. 
Yeah, it takes precedent on finances, schedule, everything. Absolutely. What are some other idols that uh, we've we maybe considered the last couple of weeks? Sleep. How can sleep be an idol? It's only good, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, we, uh, golly. All right, I'm actually going to pray for her right now, so let's pray. Lord, I come to you now, and I pray for Jessica. Uh, that cough is absolutely horrible, and uh, I just pray that you would uh, give her some relief from that and clear her lungs and allow her to breathe easy, as I know she would greatly appreciate it. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, sleep. Sleep can absolutely um, be something that, what was that, the... Uh, Weak is the bond with the Lord that can be broken by the chains of sleep or something like that from a few weeks back. That uh, it can be more important for me to get that extra hour than to get up and spend time with the Lord. I won't ask how many have gotten up earlier and prayed since then. I don't want to bring on any guilt or anything like that. Um, For Israel, what were the consequences of their misplaced fear and idolatry? Having to drink their sin. Yeah, we're going to look at that tonight. That's a bit crazy. What are some other consequences? What, what's the consequence for any idolatry? Yeah. Say that again. Yeah. Death. What else? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the product of all sin is it separates you from God. So the sin of idolatry is, is no different. It separates you from God. And in fact, to such a degree that you're putting something in God's place. So it's pretty, pretty significant, pretty serious. And we're going to look at it in a pretty serious way tonight. Um, one commentator said, and we, we, we looked at this um, previously, uh, a guy named Matthew said, the Sinai experience brought the Lord's holiness home to the people so that momentarily they experienced the fear of sinners before the Holy One. Likewise, while they had truly committed themselves to obey the Lord's law, it was not until the incident of the golden calf that they faced the full seriousness of the call to obedience, the Lord's stark refusal to compromise regarding his law and the dire consequences of breaking it. What we need to see as we dive back into Exodus 32 is this, this is not a people who just weren't sure what was going on. Previously, they have already said, we will do all that the Lord has said, we will do. They have entered into a covenant with God. God has shared his expectation for them on their life. They've said, yes, we will do that. And it's those same people who are now at the base of Mount Sinai, headlong in idolatry. So I'm going to read aloud Exodus 32, and then we will look at some specifics. I'm going to read the whole chapter, so y'all pray for me. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off your rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of this land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, 
These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, because remember Joshua was midway up the mountain, Moses was on top, the people were at the bottom. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. So I said to them, let any of you who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and poof, out came this calf. And Moses saw that the people had broken loose for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother, his companion, neighbor. The sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one of you at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now... If you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go lead the people to the place about which I've spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. I like the part at the end, the one that Aaron made. You know, Aaron was like, no, it popped out. No, the one that Aaron made. Um, 
verses 11 through 14, we've already covered verses 1 through 10. In 11 through 14, uh, last time that we met to study Exodus, we considered that Moses was a type of who? Christ, absolutely. What does that mean and how can it be explained that Moses was a type of Christ? In what way do we see that in this passage? He's interceding for the people. Anybody else? Mediator between the Israelites and God. I want to ask you to repeat yourself. Ask for atonement. Yeah, the people and God and God and the people. Yeah, apostle and high priest kind of picture from from Sunday. There's definitely some connections here. All right. Moses is the type of Christ. We see it in now. Where is Christ now? What does Romans 8 say about where Christ is now and what he's doing? Seated at the right hand of God, and what is he currently doing right now? Interceding for who? For us. Yes. So that's very, very significant. And I want us to have that in mind as we look at these verses. Our focus tonight is going to be 15 through 35. In verse 15, we see Moses turn and goes down the mountain. He takes the two tablets. Um, went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and the back they were written, the tablets of the work of God, the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. I want you to try to imagine this dramatic turn of events. Moses has been on top of Mount Sinai getting the law from the Lord, tablets written by his finger. He, he hears, he knows from the Lord that something has gone on not good at the base. He's walking down with these tablets written by the finger of God and he gets there and it's a pretty dramatic turn of events. Um, to be clear, what is Moses carrying? Tablets, the law. And to whom is he carrying them? To the people. Okay. And what is repeated in these verses that we may need to pay attention to? Yeah. God wrote him. It's the finger of God that produced these tablets. So, Verses 17 through 20, this is where Moses flips his proverbial lid. Um, They come down, they hear the singing. As soon as they come near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. He threw the tablets on the the ground. Uh, um, Anger burned hot. He threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to to powder, scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. He is not fooling around. Just imagine being a member of Israel. You've seen things go on. Maybe you were part of it. Maybe you weren't part of it. I want to make it clear that not all of Israel was doing what, um, what was uh, an abomination, but many of them were. Um, it says 3,000 of them fell. We'll talk about that in a minute. But just imagine Moses comes down, been with the Lord, sees what's happening, throws the tablets down, grinds the su- calf, Gets, I mean, just, just imagine an angry man with a blowtorch, you know, just, ah, you know, grinds it down, puts it in the water, drink it. No joke. Absolutely no joke here. Um, first, what symbolism might we consider with the shattered tablets? What could that possibly symbolize or represent? Relationship with God was broken because of their sin. Covenant broken, law broken. Oh man, I can't hear you. 
So sorry. <laughs> you talk so quietly. Say that again, please. Okay. Something was broken. <laughs> yes. Okay. Now, um, broken commandments, symbolic of the people's response to the testimony of the Lord. Remember, they had known the testimony of the Lord. Now he's writing it out for them. They're bringing it down. The testimony of the Lord is the thing that they have broken. They've said, no, this covenant, this testimony, why did they, um, at the beginning of the chapter, remember what it was that caused them to even step into this direction? What was it that caused them to start moving in the direction of this possible idolatry of this golden calf? Huh? Impatience, exactly, yeah. When the people saw that Moses delayed, impatience is the thing that led them into this. And so now their impatience is resulting in broken commandments. These things shattered at the base of the mountain are like them at the base of the mountain breaking that covenant and disregarding the testimony of the Lord. Now, um, there's a lot of different thoughts on this, so I kind of want to hear what y'all might think and maybe someone comes up with something neat. Uh, what do you think is the significance of making them drink the powdered calf? Yeah, leave a bitter taste in their mouth. Yeah, my brother, um, he, when he turned like six or seven, all of a sudden it was like he was a sailor. He had the, I mean, his mouth was unbelievable. Like, I look back at it and I'm, there were times in our childhood where I just expected his head to just turn all the way around because he was just a little crazy. And so I remember my mom would, uh, would make him bite a bar of soap anytime he used profanity. And it just got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And my mom finally one day was like, all right, bite the bar of soap. And he's like, throws it down, real arrogant. She's like, no, no, no. Take a bite of the bar of soap. Chew it up and swallow it. And when I read this verse, I was like, mom did that. Maybe that's where she got it. <laughs> um, but my, my brother, full on, he just goes, Looked her straight in the eye, chewed it up, swallowed it, didn't, I mean, didn't make, and now his stomach was certainly upset later. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, bitter taste. Um, he learned something. He did stop cursing at some point, and maybe that was part of his sanctification process. I do not know. Uh, yeah, so leave a bitter taste in the mouth, uh, potentially an upset stomach, make you remember what you've done. What else? Yeah, that's a great point. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. We're going to look at a little bit about what caused Moses to be different from that. Yeah, Aaron was there to protect the honor of the Lord, of Yahweh. And what did he do? He failed miserably. There's three things that are offered up in the ESV, and I think they're worth consideration. Um, drinking this powdered calf, this is where I want us to see, I want us to really tremble with Israel and see that Moses is executing sound judgment in response to the grave sin of idolatry. We, I mean, we don't shudder as we ought when we talk about idolatry and, and things that we give ourselves to and we spend our time and our efforts on. And um, 
we have shows named after idols and it doesn't bother us. And it's just, it's common in our, in fact, I heard something the other day. It was an ad for sinful shoes. I'm like, what does that even mean? But the appeal that they were making to come buy their shoes is that they were sinful. Just on regular radio. I was like, that's bizarre. Like we don't, we don't understand, that person does not understand what that means. Clearly, it's, it's just sort of commonplace. It's, it's like wonderful, tasty, and sinful. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> we just went a little far. And so I want us to tremble here uh, with Israel as we consider idolatry. The Bible doesn't say exactly what's being accomplished in this, but the ESV notes three possibilities that I would say are worth our consideration uh, because at least they expose to us some other um, pieces of scripture that can help us to understand idolatry and why it is so grave and, and so not in keeping with the commandments and the testimony of our Lord. Uh, first is the possibility of a further destruction and desecration of the idol to have the people digest it and pass it. Um, I don't want to get too graphic here, but when you eat things, they come out in a different form. And so to do so with an idol, um, would show um, you are, you are um, promoting the further destruction and desecration of that idol to show that is what that is. That pile. So, um, so yeah, that, that, that is a, a possibility. There, there's something in our, in our home where I don't like my kids using the word stupid. It's just it's an ugly word. You can use it all the time. You call, start calling each other stupid. We just don't use it. And um, um, we were doing a Bible study one day, and we came across a section of Scripture where it just plainly said, I don't remember what, uh, what version of the Bible we were using, but it just plainly said idols are stupid. And my girls, <gasps> and there was like, now what, Daddy? The Bible said stupid. We can't say stupid. What are we going to do? And so I was like, well, girls, it looks like you can say stupid if you're talking about idols. And for like the next week, hey, daddy, idols are stupid. You know, it's like <laughs> they're expressing their freedom of use of that word. But oddly enough, our family knows idols are stupid because of that. Um, and generally, uh, they, they make, you can take the form of that which you worship. So idols are stupid. Um, here we see this picture of um, that which you were worshiping even has the potential to be ground down and sprinkled on water and consumed by that, the people who, who were worshiping it. It's like the picture in scripture of taking the same tree and you know one half you're using to light a fire and keep yourself warm and the other half you're gonna make an idol that you're gonna bow down to. It is stupid. It's the epitome of stupidity. The epitome of stupidity. That'll be a title for tonight. It's catchy. Um, the epitome of stupidity uh, as, as far as um, idolatry goes. And so uh, turn to 1 John 5. There's an encouragement, you know, regularly through Scripture. I just want to look at a couple of them to give us some insight. Uh, 1 John chapter 5, and it's really the last part of, of, uh, of the letter. And we'll look at verse 20. Mm hmm Yeah, yeah. it's in direct opposition to the kind of supping they should be doing as a, as a nation. First um, John 5.20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Understanding is the opposite of stupidity. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, 
And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The first time I read that, I remember when I was younger, and I remember the first time that I read that because I thought, what's up with the idol thing at the end of the letter? It felt odd. It's like, it's like all this stuff, and it's like, and don't drink diet drinks. They're bad for you or something. Like, it's like, what is, what is that? I don't, it, it didn't seem to be fitting. It didn't seem to go together. So my question for you guys is, why do verse 20 and 21 perfectly go together? Yeah, you're contrasting what is true and what is not true. Yeah, he gave us understanding so that we can know what the idols are, so that we can keep ourselves from them. To not keep yourself from them is to show a lack of understanding or to disregard the understanding that's been given to us by Christ in whom we exist. Um, Turn to Colossians 3. Anytime we talk about idolatry, I like going to Colossians because it helps us to remember really what we're talking about. We're not just talking about the worship of little carved figurines. Um, we're talking about anything that, um, that we think of, we put before, we set our hearts on, we spend our time on more than the Lord. And if we look, my hope in this study is that we would take a hard look at our lives and say, what idols am I, am I submitting to? What, are there any idols in my life? Because sometimes they'll be really, really subtle, and that's what makes them so dangerous. Not often will I find someone who says, man, I've just got this little figurine that I cannot stop bowing down to. However, there are lots of things that that person may be bowing down to in another way and submitting to in another way. And so um, Colossians 3, it's in a section talking about putting on the new self. For If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So there's this picture of who we are in Christ, what it means to put on the new self. And then in verse 5, it says this. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. A lot of times we'll disconnect idolatry from some of those things, but the reality is, is that those things are the absolute essence, the, 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 the uh, exact thing uh, that we are doing when we are submitting to idols, covetousness. I mean, do you look at things that other people have and desire them? Do you look at circumstances that other people have and desire them. Maybe it's not their car. Maybe it's their marriage. Maybe it's um, their upbringing. I mean, there are so many things that we can be covetous about, and that thing can become an idol for us. And so the picture here isn't just try to fight against that. It's put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Murder it. Cut the lifeline. Break off the air supply. Uh, to be, I don't want to be violent in what I'm saying, but I mean, that's what it says. Put it to death. Do not dabble in it. Put to death what is earthly in you. These things, which are idolatry. Um, the second thing that it mentions, you can turn back to Exodus 32. These last two things we won't spend as much time on, but um, the possibility that it's a step in shaming the Israelites for their folly and worshiping the calf. 
um, shame on you for, for doing something so ridiculous in, in light of the testimony of our Lord. Drink it. Um, possible. Uh, and the other thing is that it could be a type of test, something like the test for adultery in Numbers 5, exposing degrees of guilt. I'm not going to turn to Numbers 5. If you'd like to study it, you can. Essentially, in Numbers 5, you have one spouse who has committed adultery and wasn't, they were not caught in the act, and so they go to the priest, and there is a drink that is given to show whether or not they are guilty or not. And it's, it's difficult. It's, it's Old Testament law and, and, and ritual, and, there, and there's detail in that. But um, there are uh, plenty of commentators who say possibly it would be like, okay, if you drink it and you die, maybe you're a guilty one, something along those lines. So, uh, but it doesn't say for sure, so we, we treat those as things that are possibilities. Um, no matter where you land, uh, the truth remains firm that idolatry is a grave sin. Uh, it displaces God in my heart. It replaces my thoughts with itself. It consumes my time, my energy, and my resources because idols always demand sacrifices. You will never have an idol that does not demand sacrifices. Um, it is not a thing to take lightly. Let's look at verse 21 through 24. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? What does the question itself indicate in Moses' view of what has happened? Yeah, Aaron wasn't just a coward. He's wronged the people. He's wronged God and he's wronged the people. What else does this indicate? Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 Yeah, he is not Jesus. Nor is Aaron or nor is Moses. Um Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What did they do to you? Did they hold a gun to your head and make you fashion the cat? What happened? There's this almost sense of disbelief or unbelief of Moses saying, seriously, you were chosen because of your eloquence and your leadership skills. I don't talk good. You talk good. And you're telling me, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know these people, they're set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man brought, up, brought us up out of the land of Egypt. We do not know what happened to him. So I said to them, let any of you who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. That's the guy who talks good. That's the guy who's eloquent. That's the guy who is well-spoken. That's the guy who's a good leader. Here he is a fool. Now, why is he a fool? Like I said earlier, idols are stupid, and those who worship them will reflect their character. So first... Does this conversation remind you of anything? Adam and Eve, absolutely. The garden. What happened when they sin? Uh, the Lord shows up. Who does he address first? Adam. Adam, what have you done? What does Adam say? You know Eve. You know how powerful she is over me. She's so hot. And then he goes to Eve, and what does Eve say? Oh, the serpent. And then who doesn't get to speak on their own behalf? The snake, yeah. This is uh, very much garden imagery, blame shifting. A lot of times when sin comes in, 
uh, idolatry comes in, we become foolish, and then we don't take the blame, we shift the blame, it's divisive, it, it gets in the way of relationships. Um, a lot of times in, in marriages, it's, it's there's sin, what are we going to do? And a lot of times what happens is before, before you address the sin and aim to, to repent and to turn from it, you'll see a season where married people will blame each other. And, and you don't make much headway. You don't make much progress when you're blaming each other. But when you say, you know what, this is sin. I need to repent. And I need to, to turn from this. And I need to move Godward. That's good. But the blame is, is, is another form of idolatry. It could be pride. Um, it could be um, a number of different things. But um, what, what we see is that blame makes its way in because sin and idolatry make us stupid. And, and we think that we can maybe actually fool God or we could fool other people rather than be true to the testimony that he shared. Second, it's good to note what we're seeing here, that there's a difference between Aaron and Moses. We're seeing the difference here between a man who is much with God and a man who is much just with people. Um, Aaron, to some degree, has become a people pleaser. There's a book written by, uh, I'm pretty sure it was Ed Welch, um, called When People Are Big and God Is Small. And it's about being people pleasers and saying, you know, th the opinion of people can be so high that it is, in fact, an idol that is taking the place of God. And what we're seeing here is, is the difference between a man who's much with God and much with Aaron. Just, just, in, just briefly, what are the differences in this chapter between Moses and Aaron? They should be obvious. I just want us to, yeah. Moses spent time with God, been with God. Aaron's been with, with the people. What are some other differences we can maybe draw out to, to have understanding? Yeah, Moses is immediately angry when he sees what happens, and, and Aaron had gone along with it. Yeah. Any other differences? Uh huh. It's completely remarkable, isn't it? Isn't it amazing the the demeanor that Moses has because of the time that he spent with the Lord? Uh, in regards to Aaron's actions, one commentator really stated it real simply, and I thought it was good. He said, "Great indeed was his sin; marvelous the mercy which pardoned it." Um, we know from Deuteronomy nine. Uh, don't turn there. I'll, I'll, I'll just read it to you. You don't have to turn there. In Deuteronomy 9.20, it says, uh, oh, that's not right. Let's see. Eight, yeah. Um, yeah, somewhere in Deuteronomy, it says that uh, that um, we, we know that the reason that Aaron was in fact pardoned was because Moses went and prayed for him. He, he lifted him up to the Lord. And so remarkable what we see here. Uh, verse 25 through 29 is probably the most difficult section in, in chapter 32. Moses saw that the people had broken loose. This broken loose, um, that's a really uh, G-rated version of what happened here. Frankly, um, <laughs> I don't see it necessary to go into explicit detail, but what I want us to know 
is that what the people had fallen into here, this broken loose, broken loose, you could define it as people who um, had given way to um, all sorts of idolatry, immorality. They had returned to a lot of the practices that they had witnessed in Egypt. Um, There were things they witnessed in Egypt that were sensual in nature, um, filthy, wrong, not in accordance with who our God is and what he has called us to. And um, in fact, they're unclothed at this point. And so um, what they had, when it says broken loose, I want y'all to know that they have fallen headlong into idolatry, immorality, and the things that they witnessed the Egyptians do who had no fear of God. And so what, it's filthy. It's a filthy situation. It should be shocking to anyone who walks in and says, what in the world happened? Shocking. It's filthy. So it says that they broke loose. For Aaron let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. I mean, this is serious, serious. They just drank the powdered calf. And now he says, Who's on the Lord's side? He's watching. This has gone on. They're they're in this state of they're caught right in the act of just absolute filth. He says, who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, put your sword on your side. Each of you go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp. Each of you kill his brother, his companion, his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. This is difficult. And in it, well, first of all, just what's difficult? Let, let's make sure we're all on the same page. Yeah. 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 Just the sons of Levi came forward. What's going on there? What else is difficult about this section of scripture? They were bad. What else is difficult about this? Killing people they know with the sword. A sword. I mean, not to get too graphic, but think about what it's like if someone's killed by a sword. Yes. Family. Your people. Who you've been through hard things with. Probably people that you remember making bricks with back in Egypt. People who you stood by when you heard the Lord's voice in the wilderness. People that you walked with as you saw the pillar and the cloud. These are the people that that they are killing. They're killing them. That's difficult. Um, I want us to remember that the physical types given in the Old Testament are spiritual realities for us to learn by. The physical types given in the Old Testament are spiritual realities for us to learn by. What I mean is this. Is it okay for us to kill sinners? Oh, man, you're, some of y'all are taking, you're like, that's a loaded question because, okay, you sinned. Do I get to take my knife out and ch- stab you, shiv, shank? Is that okay? Okay. No, Jeff, it's not okay. No. Um, yeah, yeah, if it was against me and you had a knife, maybe, but, um, but no. Uh, yeah, we don't get, as a Christian nation, as a nation of priests, a royal priesthood, 
We don't say, okay, everyone's going to follow Jesus. You're going to live according to what he says. You're going to obey him. And if you don't, guess what? We are going to kill you. I'm going to say um, uh, that we don't do that. Exactly. Um, should you decide to do that? I would say that's bad. Um, uh, if we take up our sword, what are we taking up as Christians? Uh-huh. The sword we've been given. Yeah, turn to Ephesians 6. Exactly. The sword that we have been given to take up is the word of God. Ephesians 6 says, let's see, where is it? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God and you'll be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against blood. Uh, take up the whole armor. Stand firm in all circumstances. Take up the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So if we are to take up our sword against those who are sinning, those who are even in idolatry, what are we doing? We're speaking the truth. And how are we called to speak the truth? In love. Speak the truth in love. Um, I want to share a reading from A.W. Pink. Uh, I've just got a couple minutes left. Ben asked me to be done on time because he's teaching the kiddos. And in return, you can expect a 34-minute sermon from him this Sunday. Y'all should, you, should, you should email him about it. Email him. Um, it, it, it's hard when you're reading that and say, man, they killed their own people. This thing, did Moses lose it? Was Moses wrong? That's one of the things I asked the first time I read that. Did Moses go too far? I mean, did he let his anger get the best of him? The anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. There's plenty of times where I'm meeting with Christians and I want to punch them in the nose, but the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. I have to be sober-minded and self-controlled and speak the truth in love rather than do what I feel like doing when I'm angry with people who are being crazy and stupid. Has Moses done that here? A.W. Pink says this, he says, A swift and summary vengeance must therefore be visited upon them in order that the survivors might be brought to soberness and repentance and that the divine wrath, which had only been suspended by his entreaties, might be averted from utterly consuming the nation. He goes on to say, Natural inclinations might well shrink from compliance with such a command. That's a really wordy way of saying, You might hear go kill them and think, Uh-uh, what? I don't know if I can do that. Sentiment would say, not so. Let us be gentle and gracious. We shall accomplish more by kindness than severity. Reason would argue, we can do no good by slaying people. There is far more power in love than in the sword. Let us seek to woo and win them back to God. Such arguments sound very plausible, but the call at this point in the word was distinct and decisive. Put every man his sword by his side. There was nothing else for it in view of that calf. So in preaching to idolaters, today it is the wrath of a holy God and not his love, which is a truth for his own people only, which needs to be pressing upon them. Now, I can't agree with everything you just said. I think sinners and idolaters need to know about the love of God. But I would ask you, how old were you when you first heard about the wrath of God? Like really, I'm looking for numbers here. Five? 
High school, we were going through Romans 9, lots of wrath. Eight. Okay. Anyone else remember the first time they heard about God's wrath? Yeah. I find it to be, um, I remember I, I was significantly older, like significantly older, not a child. And I grew up in church and I find that to be the case for a lot of people that it's like wrath of God. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought he was love. God's love, right? What about wrath? And so um, I actually remember the first time I heard about the wrath of God, I said, not my God. No, no, no. That's not how my God works. And when I heard of him visiting wrath on those, he will have mercy on whom he has mercy, compassion on whom he has compassion, and, and wrath on whom he has wrath, and it's towards unrighteousness, and suppresses the truth. I just thought to my, it's not my God. And what I had to work through the first time I ever heard about wrath was that my version of God was an idol. That didn't mean I was godless and not believing, but I had, over the years, partially from bad teaching, partially from not spending my own time in this word, that I had a version of God that I was cool with and I'm all right with. But when you mention wrath, I'm like, not my God. And I might as well have been saying, not my lowercase g God idol because what I was worshiping was not the true God. And I had to learn quickly, what is wrath? What is it towards? What is unrighteous? How does it suppress the truth? How is wrath diverted? Okay, propitiation. What is propitiation? How do, that's a wrath absorber. I need that propitiation. Oh, that's Jesus. Jesus is the propitiation. Okay, that's good. I need atonement. I need sacrifice. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at this Old Testament, and I'm saying, oh, this makes a lot of sense. I, I'm getting the, the connections here. But for a lot of us, we, no one mentioned wrath to us. And they certainly didn't mention it in detail. And there are times in your life where you will have to remind people of the wrath of God, especially when they're headlong into idolatry and immoral living and filth. The wrath of God is a very real thing, and it's very real towards unrighteousness because that unrighteousness suppresses the truth. And I want us to have a good balance there. I think as Reformed people, we probably tend to the wrath, 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 wrath. You don't forget about the wrath. And sometimes we'll talk about love. We can have a tendency towards that, those who believe in the doctrines of grace. And there has to be a balance there where we understand the love is so perfect and so fulfilling and so complete in Christ. It's lacking in absolutely nothing. But without Christ, all you're left with is wrath. For some of you, you may be, you may be hearing that and saying, well, clearly I need Jesus. I need to talk to someone. If so, talk to someone tonight. Talk to me. But we have to see here that wrath can't be overlooked. And so when he's sharing and preaching to idolaters, it's the wrath of a holy God that they need to hear about. Here, there were some who needed to hear the wrath of God to such a degree that 3,000 of them died by the sword. What I hope for us to see is what the author goes on to describe as uncompromising and unsparing dealing with all that is dishonoring to God with everything that savors idolatry. Are we uncompromising in the way that we deal with sin? Do we see those who maybe savor parts of idolatry and do we wink at it? Are we uncomfortable with addressing it? 
What, let me ask you a question. Is it easy to address sin in someone else's life? No, it's not. Um, who is usually the most difficult to address? The ones you're closest to, the ones you love, family, friends. That's when it's difficult to address sin. So what must our view of the truth be in order for us to address those closest to us? Can you be on the fence? Can't be on the fence. Yeah. 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 I think maybe might possibly, if, if you would um, consider that that's evil. That's not going to go very far. That's wishy-washy. That's weak. Romans 14 says, be fully convinced as to what you believe. Fully convinced is a picture of um, decided, not tossed to and fro by every wave of doctrine. In fact, but when we address sin in someone else's life, we're called to remove the plank from our own eye before we look at the speck there because we don't want to be drawn into that. We want to make sure we've gone before God. We are serious about holiness and we are doing that in our own lives and in someone else's life as well. Addressing sin is very difficult. We need each other. We need accountability. We need others to ask hard questions and we need to be kept from idolatry. And I want us to reflect a bit on the kind of guy briefly, very briefly, um, and some more next week. Um, the kind of guy that has such compassion and God-centeredness. It's Moses. I mean, he, he, he spent time with the Lord. Um, I, I want us to see the apostle and high priest connections to Sunday's message. And I'd ask this, in what ways do we have opportunities to reflect the character of God as a nation of priests who would do such a thing? Yeah. Unless we have a full awareness of how far the better we were and how mm-hmm. much, you know, that allows us to be compassionate to others. Yeah. Because we know where we've come from yeah. and what God is redeeming us from. Yeah. Without a, a right understanding of, you know, those of us who I went through where I built my life, I'm not that bad. My sins are little compared to everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that doesn't allow you to be compassionate. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Someone else have something? Um, In what ways do we have opportunities to reflect the character of God as a nation of priests? We'll talk about this more next week. Essentially, I'm looking at bearing up the burdens of others by addressing sin in their life and praying for them. I'll close with a quote from C.A. Coates. He says, it was the same spirit of Christ which led Moses to take a decided stand in public against those who had allowed what was contrary to God. So he's saying, it's the spirit of Christ that led him to slay 3,000 through the sons of Levi. It was the spirit of Christ who led, the same spirit of Christ which led Moses to take a decided stand in public against those who had allowed what was contrary to God that also led him to go up and pray for them in secret with such intense yearning for their good. Look at, look at what it says. Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned against, has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. He, ha, he has such compassion for the people, but it flows in a right way. Love for God, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor. We cannot change those. Love for God must be first, love for neighbor must be next. And because they're in a right order with Moses, what we see is a compassion that is not normal for, for people that 
I would say it's not normal across the board. I may have gone back up to God and said, you're right. You're not going to believe what I just saw. Make a nation out of me if you think it'll work. I, I, pro- I may have done that, knowing that the Lord gave that option earlier on. But he's filled with such compassion because his love for God is first and his love for others is, is very real because of his love for the Lord. And so he says it's the same spirit that made him take that hard stand that also led that same man back up the mountain to say, Lord, take my life. If, if, if it's possible, it sounds like Romans 9. It sounds like Paul saying, I, I, my heart is broken for my kinsmen because they're not saved. I would wish that I myself were cursed and cut off for the sake of my kinsmen. That's, that's saying I love them so much. If there was a love that existed that could, that could be made manifest in such a way that I could die for them to live, I would do it. That I'm hearing Paul in, in Moses' words here. I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off for the sake of my kinsmen. Prayer in secret with such intense yearning for their good. And then he goes on to say, the man who takes the strongest ground against me when I'm wrong and when I have set aside what is due to the Lord is probably the one who prays the most for me. Oh, I so want it to be that way. That the one that would take the hardest stand against me if he thinks I'm in sin would be the one who prays the most for me. That's what he was seeing here. Our time with God can and should affect every relationship that we have with those that we live life with. We'll talk more about that next week. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you. We thank you for our time tonight. I pray that we would be compassionate people filled with a desire to love you first and others next. And uh, that that would result in not winking at sin, being able to address it biblically, taking up the sword of the Spirit, being diligent about putting sin to death in our own lives and the lives of others, and then bearing up those uh, in prayer as a, as a nation of priests that we would represent the people to you um, as we yearn for their good, uh, which we know is only found in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.